Today's message is all messed up. <laughs> all messed up. Acts 15, verses 36 through 41. We close that first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas, uh, and now we commence this, the reading of the second missionary journey. Verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, now those were the individuals that were on the first, first journeys, establishing those churches. Okay, and so Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. And Barnabas was desirous of taking John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and departed, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Amen. This is not a passage that you necessarily want to brag about, you know. But this is what I love about the Bible. It's, it's real. You know, not only does it show you the triumphs, but it shows you kind of the dark valleys, the moments where you're not so proud to say, you know, yeah, that's my leader. This is a moment where you would kind of say, ah, this is not Paul at his best. This is not Barnabas at his best. It's one of those, those moments. Now, as I was kind of thinking about this idea of being messed up, don't we all try to give the impression or at least the illusion that we're all put together? Think about it, right? Wherever we go, we, you know, you don't kind of show all of your garbage to everybody. You know, it's like when, some, when you invite somebody over to your house, you probably at least shove it in the closet. That's at least the minimum of what you do, right? And when, 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 when you know your boss is going to show up in your workspace, you tidy up your desk, your workspace, right? When people come, whether family or friends or coworkers, and even strangers, when you meet them, you try to give the impression that your life is clean and put together. This is a natural thing. We do it in our cars. Now, you know when you're, you're going to, have you ever had that impromptu, you gave somebody a car ride and you didn't have a chance to give, clean up the car? Anyone ever, anyone ever have that, right? Or are you the one that is always just immaculate, right? And so yesterday, I had that happen to me. You know, uh, Jenny and I, we took the kids and we went to a, a fair that was put on by a church in Chino Hills. And we were invited by Solomon and Julia. And so we went there and, you know, uh, it was fun. The kids had a blast. You know, Jenny and I enjoyed the time that we had there. And they, Solomon and Julia, went to the fair with uh, Julia's parents. But Julia's parents left early and they took the car. Now, mind you, Solomon and Julie don't live far away. It's about a 20-minute walk, okay? And so they were about to say, you know what? Okay, we're headed home, and we're just going to walk. And I said, you know, no, I'll drive you there, right? And so, uh, you know, they're like, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. We'll just walk. It's not very far. No, no, really. It's, I'll drive you there. And so, you know, Jenny and Jacob and Christopher kind of waited at the entrance, and we walked to the car. And, you know, I was thinking, my car's clean, right? But, you know, as I opened the back door, because I had to take out one of the car seats, at least Jacob, so that Julia could sit in the back and Wyatt took Christopher's car seat, I really, I'm like, this is a mess back here, right? What are these kids doing? It is filthy. There are toys and papers and wrappers everywhere. And, like, I had to, like, in the five, I had about five seconds, because Julia was coming behind me, right? I had about five, I just, just threw everything on the floor right in front of the car seat. 
And then I had to take Christ, uh, Jacob's out and I put it in the trunk, right? And Julie kind of got caught on to what I was doing. She said, don't worry, I got two kids too, right? And that kind of put me at ease. But that just goes to show you, right? Even in the small little, little details of our, in spaces of our lives, we try to clean up the mess and present ourselves as clean and tidy. But truth be told... We're all jacked up on the inside. When you kind of peel back all the layers, when you, when, you, when you let it all shine in its glory, it's not all that shiny. There's a lot of mess underneath in our thought life, in our choices, our actions, our paths. There's a lot of mess there. And you wish that in the biography of our lives, when all is said and done, only the highlights would be there for the loved ones to remember us by. But there is so much in between those highlights. There's so much in between those victorious moments that really shows a lot of dirt. This kind of leads me to the first point. Not only are our cars and everything else kind of messy in our lives, life and relationships are messy. Now, this is just a real statement. It's just to tell us that, you know what? Oh, Life gets messy. When I relate with people, things happen and I don't necessarily respond to those things in the right way, the best way all of the time. Actually, I probably do it the wrong way most of the time. I'm a fallen person. I make bad choices. I relate with people in ways that are subpar, that I should not. I say things I regret. I think things I should not. I do things I do not want to do. Why? Life, relationships, things are messy. There tends to be a divergence in our hearts and in our daily lives. And it's the divergence of these two things. What is ideal and what is real. Think about it. Ideally, I want to be like a loving, perfect husband and father and pastor. Ideally, I want to pray as my first resort. Ideally, I want to have great faith to overcome tough situations. Ideally, 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 all of these things. Yeah, that's it. This is how I should respond. But there tends to be a divergence between what is ideal in my mind and what is real in my life. Too often, I fall short of the prayerful, faithful pastor, father, Husband. Too often I, I, I fall short of those ideals and what is real, what is reality, it tends to be very, very different. And it was no different for these individuals in the passage that we read Saul, Paul, and Barnabas. There is a passage in Scripture that I, I think. In a certain sense, you would put it in the ideal category, and it's in Matthew. Jesus said, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, okay, so you're doing something, you're, you're giving an offering to God, you're worshiping the Lord, you're in service and presenting something of yourself to God as a sacrifice. In that moment, if you remember that somebody has a qualm with you, against you, if there is some sort of relational struggle, it says leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Now this is ideal, isn't it? Like you're doing something for the Lord and there you remember, oh man, wait a minute, this is not important. I need to go and fix this first before I come back and serve God. This is great. It should be this way, right? 
that we, we don't let the sun go down on our anger, that we're able to reach out to people, lower our pride, and in humility reach out and sacrifice and repair relationships that are broken, hurting, lost. This would be great. It'd be great if Paul did that. It'd be great if Barnabas did You know what? It's water under the bridge. You know, I know Mark deserted us, but you know what? It's okay. Let's accept, let's accept the man. It'd be great if that was the case. But Paul, the mighty apostle, the planter of churches, the apostle for the New Testament, it'd be great if this man, this leader, this servant-hearted Christian leader, it would be great if he were able to embrace Mark as a Christian should. Not go on the missionary journey and first be reconciled to Mark before even thinking about that. It'd be great. That'd be a great picture of unity in the church, of how to deal with relationships, but that we don't see. Paul, to the very end, said, no, I, I don't like the guy. He left us. He deserted us. I don't even want to do ministry with him. No. And Barnabas is like, wait, come on. You know, he was that gentle spirit, the one that was that encourager. You know, surely Barnabas could oversee the, 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 the shortcomings of Mark. And so there just wasn't a disagreement. It says a sharp disagreement. We're talking about, I mean, they might be hurling hurtful words at each other. They're doing stuff. There was a sharp disagreement between these two. A couple of scriptures to kind of give context. In Acts 13, this is what Paul was talking about when he was saying to Barnabas. And so, okay. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. This is on the first missionary journey in chapter 13. But John, that's Mark, left them and he returned to Jerusalem. Now this is before they started to do that swing where they got persecuted in Iconium and Lystra. Paul got stoned and you know all of these hard ships, all of these difficult experiences were happening and John left, Mark left before that ever happened. That's why Paul is saying, you know what? He left us and deserted us before the work even began, basically is what Paul's saying to Barnabas. You know, that guy, he's a, he's a light guy. You can't trust that guy. You know, when, when things get tough and it heats up, you cannot count on that guy to back you up. That's what he's thinking. He left us before the work. And Paul couldn't get over that. He couldn't get over the hurt that he felt from Mark in the past. And he didn't necessarily forgive him for it. He wasn't able to see Mark past that failure. Barnabas, what's this thing with Barnabas? Now, aren't they supposed to be like good friends, like, you know, co-laborers in the Lord? Why the, the, the rift? There's a passage that I think gives some context to this, Galatians chapter 2. But when Cephas, that's also Peter, okay, he was another strong New Testament church leader. But when Peter came to Antioch, this is where Paul and Barnabas were kind of based, right? This is kind of like their home church, Antioch was. When, they came, when he came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed Peter to his face. <laughs> like, I went right up to him and, hey, you know, you can't be doing this. I went up in his grill and said, no, this is wrong. This is what Paul's saying. I opposed him to his face. This is confrontational, right? Because he stood condemned. Why? For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. So this is the story. 
Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch. There's a lot of Gentile believers in Antioch. It was a very multi-ethnic type of church. We've talked about this in the past, right? And so Peter comes. And so now when he's there, he's the only one there with Paul and Barnabas. And so he's getting along with everybody. He's sitting with not only the Jews, he's sitting with the Gentile believers. And he's having a good time relating with them. But then James sends some folks from Jerusalem. And these guys were a little bit more stronger, adamant in their Jewish identity. Right? They were folks that would probably say, you need to be circumcised according to the tradition of Abraham. And so these folks were sent, and they also now are in this community in Antioch. And suddenly, Peter's like, whoa, what do I do? They're going to think of me in a certain way if I'm eating with these folks. And suddenly, he changed. And he began to, to, to distance himself from the Gentile believers in Antioch, and he only sat with the Jewish folks. And so Paul goes right up into his face, hey! You two-faced guy, you. This is wrong. You can't be doing this. You stand condemned right now. And so this is the dialogue of the culture of the church that's happening in the New Testament. It's very difficult. It's relationally tense. And you've got folks like Peter and Barnabas and also Mark who are sympathizing with the Jewish community, the Jewish Christians, and you got people like Paul who are gung-ho to reach the Gentiles, non-Jews, for the faith. And because of this cultural thing that was happening, it began to, to shift and separate these folks. Barnabas takes Mark and he goes to Cyprus. and he, Interestingly, you'll never read Paul go back to Cyprus. Somehow that became a point of difference and it was a region that he never visited again in any of his future missionary journeys. Okay. Barnabas takes Mark and he goes there. And now Paul reroutes. He says, you know what, who can I take with me? And he finds Silas. Silas was found faithful. And he takes him. He doesn't even go by ship anymore. He just goes by land and he goes northwest. And he goes into the region. But this shows us something. Another facet is found in this aspect, where it says Barnabas uh, was carried away by their hypocrisy, this was also, you know, what's happening. Not only did Peter stay, distance himself from the Gentile community, after Peter was there and started to do this, he began to apply a little bit of pressure. And what happened was Barnabas, this son of encouragement, also began to do the same thing. Distance himself from the Gentiles. But what's this thing going on now? Another passage found in Colossians. It talks about Barnabas was the cousin of Mark. <laughs> so now you've got a family thing going on, right? And so Barnabas is partial to taking Mark, not just because he saw past his past, but also there's some blood ties here. He's a cousin, right? And if you think about another passage, it says in 1 Peter, this relationship with Peter, he had a close relationship with Mark. It's like, I call him my son. He's my son. There was a close connection there. And so now Peter, Barnabas, Mark begins to form this cluster, this clique. Paul is now gung-ho and continuing to going apart from this group. Now this is not what you call unity in the church. You know, if we were a part of this, we would be thinking, whoa, this is tense. You can cut it with a knife in here. Wow. That's what you'd be thinking. 
It's like when you have a, a, a sharp disagreement in the family or amongst friends or in the workspace. It's not comfortable to be there. And anyone who goes in between those folks, whoa, wait, what's going on here? It was evident. Everybody knew about it. It was sharp. It was strong. And it was not a testament of unity in the church. Something that is so central to the faith. And we find it all messed up, all jacked up here in this passage. So life and relationships, they get messy. But God still uses that mess. This I find absolutely amazing. Isn't this the gospel? That you're jacked up, you're messy, you're sinful, you fall short. But the gift of God. For God so loved that you are saved not by works, but by grace. And you find this message in the gospel. That we don't have to come before God and just kind of chuck everything on the floor of the car to say, hey God, I'm, I'm really clean and put together. Don't worry about it. I got no mess here. I'm good. You can trust me. You can count on me. I won't fail you. That you find that that is not the gospel. You find that the gospel is that when we come in our sinful stank, we come before God and say, God, man, I'm just messed up. God says, I could use that. I could do something with that. And you find that the mess that is submitted in humility before God, that's not trying to hide, but simply in acknowledgement of that mess and say, I need grace. I need your power. I need your spirit. That's the gospel. The gospel is not by works, but by grace. The gospel is while we were lost in sin, when the Bible says there is none righteous, when the Bible says none seeks after God, that in that mess, God says, I love you. I'll use that. And I think there are at least four truths that I'll give to you that I think dramatically uh, inform this conversation. And truth number one, God is more compassionate than we think, right? Now, I know we think God is compassionate, but I, I think we need to up the game even more than that. That God is so compassionate. You know what the Bible says? Write this reference down. Psalm 56, verse 8. Psalm 56, verse 8. This is what it says. You have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. <laughs> that every time I wander off, you've taken note of that. Now, this is not like, oh, you wandered off. Let me, let me reprimand you for that. It's not that type of taking note. It's like you, you notice. Every time I wander off, and every tear I've shed... You've collected it in a bottle. Are they not in your book, the psalmist says. I think the fear of not being accepted by God because of our imperfections is a fear that we need not have. That, that pressure when you're courting somebody, when you're meeting somebody, trying to impress somebody, you try to, to wear the nicest clothes, smell nice, bathe, right? You try to look presentable. You go into the job interview looking clean and sharp because you want to impress the person. You want them to accept you, receive you, help you, offer you things. 
And we have this pressure constantly in relationships. And we transfer that pressure to God. That when we meet with God, somehow we feel more accepted when things are tidied up. We feel more loved, that God would welcome us more, that He'd use us more. And we have this idea that is wrongly associated with God. God is compassionate. And He knows when we wander, when we cry, He says, I'll catch those tears, I'll collect it because they mean something to me. He's so compassionate. And if you have trouble with this idea, get it down, meditate on this truth. Know that God is compassionate over your life. He's not an angry God overseeing, just trying to to make sure and reprimand at every wrong turn. Rather, when He sees you wandering off, He's more like a loving Father who tries to bring you back, tries to protect you from that danger even before you get there, even before that final footstep, that He's a compassionate God. The second truth is this. God is never caught off guard or shocked by my mess. It's like when you meet, whoa, I was like, wow, I didn't expect that. <laughs> you know, when you get to know somebody, right, like you're dating, like the third date, like it comes off with a certain attitude or like they say something, or whoa, like, wow, wow, I, I did not know. <laughs> it's like, whoo. Have you ever heard the joke of, you know, when you, when you date somebody and you get married and after the first day waking up, you're like, oh, your face looked like that? Like, I didn't know you took a shower. I didn't even know. Every time I saw you, it was like it was different. It was put together, right? So God's never shocked, though. You know, there's nothing that we can hide and and conceal so well that suddenly when it's revealed, God looks at us and says, Whoa, I didn't sign up for saving that. That that conversation doesn't happen. You can write this reference, Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understood my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. That's Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6. So don't have the pressure to think that God is going to have this distasteful thing in His mouth when He sees you for what you really are. He already knows what we really are. And He accepts us in that state. Truth number three. God's plans are bigger than our contributions. We need to get this straight, okay? Just because I fail, suddenly I don't throw this wrench in God's plan, you know? Just because my life is messed up, it doesn't mean the wheel of God's plan is going to stop rolling. God's plan is bigger than us. We need to take a humility pill there, all right? If somehow I think that my failure will stop God from doing His thing, I've inflated my actions way too much. I've given it too much weight. God is beyond that. So He'll take my work, my good, but it'll also work even in spite of my bad and my lack and my failure. That God's plan is bigger than whatever I can contribute to that plan. That frees us, actually. It helps us to know our life in perspective. 
in our passage, ministry went on. Paul failed. Barnabas failed. This was a, a relational mess going on. And what happened? Barnabas went to Cyprus. Paul took Silas and he went over to Syria and he went north by land. Ministry pushed forward. There were still other churches that were being encouraged. There were probably more churches that were being formed. All in the midst of these fallen disciples and apostles. God's plan is bigger. And the fourth truth that I'll give you is this. God can use anything to work for good. This is the reference you can write. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Maybe some of you know this, have memorized it. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. God can use division. (laughs) That suddenly He's not handcuffed because there's division. Of course, we should not use that as an excuse to have relational rifts. To say, you know what, I I won't live in unity because God can do it anyway. It's not an excuse for that. But what we do need to know is that God can use any circumstance, any individual, and make it good. John Stott, I think this is a beautiful quote. This is what he says. This example of God's providence may not be used as an excuse for Christian quarreling. Right? Just because, hey, Paul and Barnabas quarreled and the ministry went on, still churches were growing, things were happening. You know, hey, it doesn't matter. And so what Stott is saying is, this example of ministry going forward should not be used as my card, my get-out-of-jail-free card, to say, you know what, I can quarrel. And John Stott is saying it should not be that. So though God can use people in division, we are still accountable for the division we create. Some passages that I gave to you. It didn't end this way with the quarreling in Acts 15. I'm thankful for that. A couple of passages. Colossians 4.10. This is, remember the passage I gave you, it said Barnabas is the cousin with Mark? It goes on. Whom you received instruction, if he comes to you, Paul is saying this, welcome him. So suddenly, there's a, there's a shift here, right? Later on, they, they repaired things, right? And so if Mark ever comes to you, welcome him, open arms. So now he thinks positively of him. Another passage, Philemon. Talks about a fellow prisoner in Christ greets you as, as does Mark. He greets you as well. He calls him a fellow co-worker. A fellow worker in Christ. So they repaired things. Second Timothy, only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you for he is useful to me for service. And so they patched things up. And they began to serve the Lord together. And this is a good end, of course, to that. But the premise of this message is that life is messy. God understands and can use the mess of our lives. And we need not try to hide and show ourselves as all cleaned up to Him. After we receive His grace, the Spirit is given to us. We are empowered to live differently. Then, of course, our life can start to look different stage by stage. This is called sanctification. 
But our acceptance before God is not based on our cleanliness, on our successes. I finish. You guys come back. I finish with two points. Grace is messy. That's why it's grace. That's why it's grace. Because it is messy. The truth is, relationships, life, everything is messy. So we ought to get used to that. And the grace that God extends to us is in the midst of that big old mess. And lastly, persevere through the messes and failures and keep pursuing our good God and His purposes. Don't let failure in the presence of any shortcoming, the presence of any dirt, to stop and hinder you for pursuing a God that loves you in the midst of that and pursuing His great and good purposes. Don't let Satan win and sell you the lie that in order to be accepted by God, you need to be perfect. Don't let him rub failure in your face and say, because of this, you're disqualified for service. Know that even in the mess, you can pursue a holy God. Ask for grace. Be empowered. Be, be stood up on your feet again by that power and by that grace. And God can use you. Amen? Amen.